Why are police photographing our license plates? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. Uh, And as I've been asked to point out from time to time, the reasonable voices is plural. It means those who come on my show, like today's guest, Eileen Davis, are reasonable voices in the good fight. And we love hearing from them and getting updates from them. Eileen Davis, among other things, is a registered nurse, which I love because we do want to talk about some of the health issues that are facing us today because Eileen really not only has knowledge and insight, but she gives you little ripples of you just haven't thought of, or at least I haven't, and it's it's always, oh my God, kind of reaction. So we are going to talk about things like the Zika virus. Eileen Davis is the co-founder of women-matter.org, and as she's often fond of saying, the dash matters between women-matter.org, or you won't get to the site. She is the 2015 winner of the People Demanding Action Impact for Grassroots Activism. And as I said, she is a registered nurse and incredibly knowledgeable. The last time she was on the show, she talked us all through Ebola. And today we'll, as we say, dive into the Zika virus. I do want to mention that at the very least during the second segment, we're going to be talking about the National Convention for the Ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. This is a cause for which uh, Eileen Davis has been fighting for years, and I think we're down to just needing three states to be ratified, but we will get into that, if not in this segment, definitely in the next segment. But now, let's welcome Eileen Davis, registered nurse, founder of women-matter.org, and an advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment ratification. Eileen Davis, how are you? Marcella, how are you? And good morning to your uh, to your listenership. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm fine. Um, I, I, I am fine. I'm feeling a little throaty, but I'm denying it, like people deny uh, climate change. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good to hear your voice again. I know we spoke uh, recently, but it, it that was the first time in a long time. I think exactly what I said. We the last time we were on radio before last week was uh, we was the Ebola scare, and you really set us straight with that and what was going on in Richmond and in other parts of the country. Is there a specialty um, emergency room or whatever that is yours? Could you tell us? Well, I, I were, I, you know, I've been a nurse since 1976, and you can do the math, but um, <laughs> in that time I've done a lot of, uh, I've worked in a lot of areas. I've lived in five states, and um, I've worked in a lot of different areas. Community health, I worked in the emergency room, I worked in infusion, I taught at the nursing school in Richmond for a while, I've done some uh, clinic work pro bono uh, for uninsured in Richmond, or 7,000 uninsured people in greater Richmond who won't fall into the Medicaid gap, and so the, um, the work in the population of the uninsured, which does actually include a fair amount of undocumented people living here who don't have access to the health insurance for that reason, is also a part of what um, is an important part of clinic access. When we talk about something like the Zika virus, it's important to know that you have somebody coming here who 
has been exposed to Zika and they don't have access to a physician, a clinic like um, like the free clinic that I'm discussing, Crossover and other clinics, there are 59 clinics in Virginia that serve the uninsured population and we do not have Medicaid expansion. And going back to the story about Ebola, uh, when we talked about Ebola, the one case in Virginia that was possible Ebola came out of that clinic and it was the person from another country who didn't feel well and went to that clinic and was uh, subsequently brought to VCU for isolation and evaluation but one has to ask the question where would that person have gone if they did not know to go to crossover if they had a deep and positive they would have stayed in the greater population for an extended period of time not having an option on where to go to the treatment. So these are important questions we need to discuss, and we're talking about epidemic and pandemic and how to address access to health care for everybody, because it's not just the individual, it's the society. You know, you again, uh, Eileen, you, you always just hit the nail on the head. It is in our denial for whatever, I don't know how people justify this, this whole thing about, no, we must cut uh, uh, social services, etc. We're always hurting ourselves. Those who, you, I mean, we the old cliche, I hate to use old cliches, but to cut off one's nose to spite one's face. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the electorate that supports that kind of thinking are ex- endangering their own families to any number of diseases that could come. We're not, we are a village, whether we like it or not. I mean, planes get us everywhere and it isn't just the poor who get sick. Anyway, it's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And, and to use my, and I use my favorite um, cliche, mm-hmm. um, it's going to cost more later, it's just by waiting, it's what I call the leaky roof. You yes. can throw a little tar on a leaky roof, but sooner or later, if you let it go, the cost of repairing that roof is going to be a lot more expensive than if you address the problem early on. So this is what we do. You know, we are not, we wait and wait and wait, whatever, and we learned this through the eighth. The AIDS in the 80s. Yes. You know, by the time it was addressed, years after it, was, it became, it started spreading in this country, by the time it was addressed, it cost hundreds of times, millions, millions more um, in, in money, and of course, in the, in the loss of many more lives before it was addressed. And it, as in any epidemic, early having gotten involved earlier could have cut that thing off at the knees and we wouldn't be still facing the issues today that we have. The money that the NIH is spending today to address HIV AIDS is many, 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 many more times than if they'd addressed it early on in the epidemic in the you know, when it was first made its presence known in the United States. And to continue that so, dollars and we're, we're doing that same thing with the Zika now. We're, yes. we're, we're delaying. So it's gonna do the same thing. You know, and Zika, Zika is a, a really pressing issue, it seems to me, because uh, just an analogy, I used to have a, a bridge phobia. Um, most of my life, bad dream over and over about going off a bridge. I won't go into the long story about how I got over it, but I did. And Not through yeah, uh, and you know, and through theater. Well, twice in my life, two different states, a bridge I had to cross was struck by a barge. Uh, it was damaged and closed, but twice now, two different states. It um, it was it happened before a holiday, like Labor Day or Memorial Day or something like that weekend, big travel time. And both times, uh, the repair was of all the news about how terrible it was, but don't worry, we'll have it fixed by the holiday. And it just seemed to me... All of that was about rushing those uh, uh, those tourist dollars. We didn't want to lose them. And I just know it was a quick fix because you could still see the repair work going on at the base of the bridge while they traffic was, uh, it had been open again to traffic. All that to say, we just don't prioritize, I don't think, intelligently, how we spend our money. And this whole thing in Virginia of not allowing a Medicaid expansion, what is that about? Politics. Yes. And and when you when you talk to when you look at the issue in a very uh, in the street issue and you work your way up, you real the when I when I work I go to the general assembly a lot and I talk a lot of uh, elected officials mm-hmm. on both sides of the aisle and the talking points by people who are against Medicaid expansion are really just kind of you know the same thing over and over again. It's in a wind tunnel. Yes. And really what in my opinion this is really about not giving President Obama a win. Uh-huh. They don't want to give President Obama a win. The other thing is, frankly, is the, uh, the, the psyche of Virginia. Virginia never does anything first. Uh-huh. 
Mm. Virginia always let somebody else do it. I mean, historically, Virginia didn't ratify the 19th Amendment, the woman's right to vote, until 1952. I guess they wanted to see... If it was going to work. And we're oh, going to be God. talking about the rights amendment again. Yes. Virginia is an unratified state and is lagging behind all the other states and is literally at this point holding it up for everyone. But Virginia does the right thing, but it always takes its time. With Medicaid expansion, it's interesting because Kentucky, state like Kentucky, is having incredible success with um, their Medicaid expansion program. Yes. And they indeed, they indeed elected a Republican governor who refused to remove it because it was too successful. So we, you know, Virginia is now seeing that it's working in other states, mm. and um, but they still are not wanting to. At first they said, oh, it was going to only be funded for three years, and then we're going to get hit with all this money and, you know, this cost, and where's it going to come from? You know, all of that has been disputed, but we're down to they won't, and they won't do anything that makes the Democratic administration look good, and they don't want it to win. It's going to happen sooner or later, because what is happening now is the money that is, could be, is would be spent in hospitals, and, and typically it's always the people that most need it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and this is the part that I can't explain. I would like someone else to explain it to me because I don't get it. It's people voting against their, both their best, their own self-interest and not realizing it. You've got rural Virginia. You've got the area down in rural Virginia over near, you know, the, the, you know, the uh, Kentucky border, yes. the West Virginia border, the Roanoke and further south area. Yes. You know, where the infamous uh, free clinics go every year and, you know, thousands of people show up to get care in a horse barn. Yes. That, that is a national embarrassment every year because it's one of the biggest health clinics for the uninsured in the country. But the interesting thing is the hospitals in those areas, in that area, are threatening to close because the lack of Medicaid dollars is making those, after those hospitals go broke. What we're now seeing is in a pocket of poverty, in a pocket of no access to health care, it's about to get worse. Yes. The health care access in a place like Southern Virginia is worse than in many third world countries. It, it, it's an embarrassment to the state of Virginia. But the interesting thing is the leadership coming out of that area, Virginia, is very conservative Republican and won't even consider doing anything, even though it hurts it, it disparately its own citizenry. And the citizenry... For some reason that no one can explain to me, always vote these people back in, even though they're working against them or can, or really threatening their own community. So I don't, I you know, it, it's politics. It's, it's politics it, and lack of education about the issue. Yes, that's true, and that and that lack of education is a is a dangerous, sometimes life-threatening thing. Uh-huh. Uh, there's no uh-huh. no question. Not every illness is as contagious as Zika, but um, the, the fact that people have to wait for a free clinic and in that same area, hospitals are in danger of closing because they can't get the government to support them. I, it, I hear you. I, the frustration is, is, is astounding. And the same thing in the, in the coal industry. There are people who mm-hmm. are voting against those who are trying to save the environment and to mm-hmm. re-educate people into new areas and professions holding on to coal. And coal has been dying as an energy source for 30 years. It's not something that all of a sudden happened, but... I don't know. If I may share a story with you, I had, a, I had a woman once who was rather short. She's in her early 50s. Her, her husband's a veteran, and this, I see this a lot. Her husband's a veteran, gets VA benefits to go to the veterans' hospital for his medical care. And there are a lot of women out there. We never talk about this. There are mm. a lot of you, for every man that you see in the VA hospital, yes. many of them have uninsured spouses. Uh. Because they they have veterans benefits, but their spouses don't, and they don't see any reason to have better uh, medical care because they don't need it because they have VA and their wives have nothing. So over the years, I've seen women come into a, a clinic for uh, perhaps nearly haven't had one in forty five years. Again, oh there's that thought thing because if they have cervical cancer, how much more is that going to be? Because then they'll get then they'll get care only after they're really sick and it's going to be really expensive. Well, anyway, I have this woman who fit that paradigm. Husband was getting veterans benefits. She was over 50. She'd never had private insurance because as a, as a 20-year-old, when she was an, or an 18-year-old or something, back when she was a kid, she had uh, leukemia, which had been cured, and she had been successfully, and she's now over 50. So, you know, it was, it was a, a, a 
a fix. I mean, she was cured, and yes. many trials of leukemia, thankfully, are. So, but it, that rendered her prior to ACA, i.e., Obamacare, uninsurable because she had a pre condition. So she's never had health care as an adult woman, other than the fact because she never could. And then when ACA came in and said the pre-existing conditions, um, you know, that you have to give people insurance, even if they have a, quote, pre-existing condition, and prior mm -hmm. to ACA, she would have picked that. It would have been completely uninsurable and thus was. So I was talking to her about how, and she works in a minimum wage job. Mm -hmm. She works in a uh, fast food, like like well, like a Wawa or something like that. Mm -hmm. Some kind of, you know, one of those kind of 7-Eleven-y kind of jobs. And um, I said, well, you know, you can apply for, a, you need to apply for ACA. You know, you can probably qualify for a, for a subsidy. And, um, you know, you'll be able to be insured for the first time in, you know, in, in you know, probably you're since like you've been an adult. Yes. And, uh, you know, you, you need to do that. And here's the number. And she goes, ACA. I said, well, it's, it's, I, I like to call it ACA because it's the Affordable Care Act. Yes. And she goes, ACA. And I said, well, you know, it's known by its nickname, <laughs> Obamacare. She looks at me and she goes, I don't want any of that Obama crap. I know. <laughs> and this is a world poor woman who has yes. no access. And she would rather, she has been told and doesn't understand She that, that, that you know, this is basically, she's exactly the kind of person that ACA, i.e. Obamacare, was, you know, would help the most. Yes. But she has been so inundated with false information. Yes. So I'm sitting there and I'm talking to her about, oh, no, you really need to talk about this. And her daughter, she's an adult daughter, is with her and is going, no, Mom, you need to look into that. You need to look into that. Well, the that's something. That she, she had been so told yes. she was supposed to hate Obama and everything about Obama that you know, the idea of accepting this program or going looking into this program was somehow worse than actually getting treatment if she ever found herself needing it. You know, I have I've, I've had a number... I've had a number of uh, health organizations on the show, and they've all said the same thing, Eileen, that if they say Obamacare, uh, people won't listen. But if you call it ACA, for Affordable Care Act, then they're all for it, even though it's the same, it's the same thing. And it's not funny. It really isn't funny, people. It's just not funny. Listen, before we go to break, do tell us about bats and Zika virus, and what on earth should we go to the Olympics or not? I personally think when you look into the history of the Zika virus, the Zika virus, they believe, is now in over two dozen countries. And the countries include places that are very far away from Brazil, which is where it's believed to have started. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been found in American Samoa. It's been found in Cape Verde, Africa. Those mosquitoes did not fly thousands yes. of miles across the ocean to yes. get to those places. That, that virus was carried home by people who visited Brazil, and they believe that the World Cup in the 2014, the soccer tournament, where hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, they believed that that was the vector moment when a bunch of people who had been bitten and given the Zika virus, and again, the symptoms can be very like low-level flu-like, mm -hmm. so you can have the Zika virus and not know it, mm -hmm. flew back to their, you know, carried it home to their home countries, and it, where the same mosquito in the same hot humid climate is, it is in place, and the Zika virus has slowly been spreading to the mosquito population and subsequently through the human population. Yes. And the interesting thing is, is that we are now poised to do the same thing with the Olympics. We are going to have people from all over the world going to Brazil, getting, you know, getting exposed to possibly being bitten by a Zika infected mosquito, themselves being a carrier, getting on a plane and going back to wherever their, their country, wherever. Mm -hmm. And if they live in an area where this, uh, the Egypti Oh, it, it's it's no, it's the Egypti aquarii, the type of mosquito that carries Zika. Yes. It's a very common one, which is, by the way, found in Virginia mm -hmm. um, and heavily found in Florida, which is why Florida currently has oh, over 100 pregnant women with Zika right now, even as we speak. There are, you know, it, this is a problem. And, and I like to use visual analogy. If you take a child's globe... Mm -hmm. You know, like a, like a globe you would have in your yes. library or something. Yes. And you take a dandelion seed flower, what my granddaughter calls a blow flower, uh -huh. and you blow that thing on top of that globe and watch where those little white feather seeds go. 
that's exactly what's going to happen when people go to the Olympics and then get back on the plane and go back to their climbing. The people that live in Norway and places like that, it's no harm, no foul. But people that live in a climate where there is a mosquito population waiting to be infected, they have now become human vectors and have returned it back to their local environment. This is a problem. And I think that the, uh, I think again, politics, I think the Olympics don't want to face this as being a, a problem. Yes. I think our government doesn't want to face it because they don't want to be the only country. But I think the lack of will here is, um, and again, we and it's, poly, and it's money. You know, what would it cost financially for Brazil not to do this? Yes. What will it cost if if it spreads like you know, like a dandelion? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? It's like shaking a pillow off the top of a hill. You can't get the. You cannot go get those numbers back. That's it's not going right. to happen. That's right. That's what we're looking at. So I, I have a concern. I'm also very upset, and it's interesting when you look at, um, you know, Marco Rubio and, and Governor Scott of Florida are madder than wet hens because Congress went on vacation without answering this, you know, voting on Zika. They yes. underfunded it drastically in terms of responding to it and, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And interestingly enough, Marco Rubio was upset about it because his own state of Florida yes. is one of the most heavily hit, and it's going to get worse. But this is going to be a very interesting thing as it plays out. And unfortunately, they are doing the same thing they did during the early years of HIV. Yes. They're ignoring the problem until they can't ignore it anymore. And when they do address it, it's going to be a bigger problem and a more expensive problem, and it's going to affect more people and result in more tragedy. And, and you know, you're going to have women born having children born with, with microencephaly, which is a devastating mm. birth defect. Mm-hmm. You cannot fix it lifelong. You know, the, the, you know, the, the microencephaly means small, is an, an undersized head. And with that is an obviously understandable, you know, intellectual incapacity. These yes. children will be lifelong disabled. You, it's nothing we can fix. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to have to stop on that note. Uh, we may talk a bit more about Zeta and virus in the next segment, but I do promise you we're going to go to the National Convention to have the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment with my guest, Eileen Davis. Stay with us. And now... Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. What a shock it must be to have a long-standing marriage suddenly come to an end. Such an occurrence may not be earth-shattering, but life-shattering it certainly is. The end of a marriage is what launches Learning to Drive, an American indie featuring wonderfully low-key performances by the gifted veterans Ben Kingsley and Patricia Clarkson. This is one of those signature films that rise to great heights by observing the simplest of details, reacquainting us with distinctively human truths. As we relate to the on-screen emotions, we must look inward, asking how we might deal with them. Book critic Wendy Clarkson has been wrapped up in her own life. She hadn't noticed that she had been taking her husband for granted. She hadn't even learned to drive. After all, that was his job. And now the marriage is over. She meets Darwan Kingsley, an immigrant Sikh, proudly earning his living as a taxi driver and driving instructor. Struggling to make it in America, Darwan has relationship issues of his own. In Learning to Drive, we share the experience of two people so different and yet so alike as they help each other grow past their hardships with sincerity and humor and heart. Learning to Drive. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest is Eileen Davis, registered nurse, a medical professional, but also, as we pointed out, she is the co-founder of women-matter.org, the 2015 winner of the People Demanding Action Impact Award for Grassroots Activism. She is a strong advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment ratification and, of course, the National Convention for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. You might think women are equal, but uh, as uh, Eileen can tell you, not under the law. Not only Eileen, but uh, Supreme Court Justice as well. 
Let us do finish up a bit on the Zika virus and tell your story about the pregnant woman who couldn't, whose uh, travel insurance company wouldn't refund. Yep. Be- came out in today's, um, actually in today's news, because again, I get, um, I get NIH and I get, you know, health bulletins among the Medical Reserve Corps. And this woman who was on va- going on vacation bought travel insurance like so many of us do. And she's going, I believe, to Puerto Rico, which is, by the way, a travel advisory because of the Zika virus. Yes. Now they are putting out travel advisories telling pregnant women not to go to uh, countries that have, or, or or regions that have a strong situation, mm-hmm. and so you know she found out she was pregnant, and she said, "Oh, we cannot go on this vacation because I am in the early stages of pregnancy, and we can't go there because I'm not going to go down there and risk being exposed to being, uh, you know, Zika." So she called her travel insurance company to refund her trip, and they turned her down and said they're not covering this. Now this is another issue where there has been no real action taken by our government. So there is no, you know, there, the NIH has not come out and formally said that this is a medically necessary. But if your doctor says you shouldn't go and you get a note, it should be covered. But this is a situation where the public is waiting for some direction, some yes. formal direction, so there can be a decision made. This, this couple is losing thousands of dollars because they're now not going. They were advised not to go, but it's only, it's a non-official advisory for the insurance company is saying we don't have to pay it, we're not going to. So let's this be clear. Kind of leaving the public hanging out there while they yes. politically have the lack of political will to do anything. So the NIH can make its recommendations, but without Congress acting on it, we're just left on our own. Is that too well, over- it's not an official thing. It's not yes. officially official. And again, there's different levels. And, you know, if they tell the insurance companies that this is a medically Exactly. And you go around and you find out. And as with any, uh, and, and, and the other thing we all know is when you have a exposure-born birth defect, not a chromosomal birth defect, but something that comes from something you're exposed to, the first trimester, when the blueprint of the, um, of the fetus is being implemented, that is the most dangerous time to be exposed to a, to a, uh, you know, a, thing that's going to, you know, what's called tetragenic. Uh-huh. When, you, when you are exposed to something that affects the fetus, it's called tetragenic. Uh-huh. You know, there are genetic birth defects, and then there is tetragenic. You know, if you're exposed to thalidomide in the 1960s, that was a tetragenic uh, medication. That medication caused severe birth defects. The Zika virus causes severe birth defects. And all severe birth defects that come from outside sources to exposure to something that's tetragenic the worst time to be exposed is in the early stages of pregnancy. Yes. And the other problem is women are told that they should wear, like you have to have a D over 25%, but yes. under 30. The problem is 25% is a pretty strong amount, and you know that's, that's almost toxic level. 30% is toxic. So women aren't even supposed to be slathering themselves with D that strong. Mm. So it's really just been a rock and a hard place. Really is. Exactly. All right. As much as I hate to shift, because you are always so informative in these medical issues, Eileen, I do want to shift to women-matter.org and to your advocacy for the Equal Rights Amendment ratification. Explain to our millennials in particular and anyone else who thinks women are legally equal 
uh, under the Constitution as we stand today. Well, the Equal Rights Amendment was the part two of Alice Paul's 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment, which the right to vote shall not be denied or bridged by the United States or any other state on account of sex, is the only enfranchised right women have in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, there were no rights for women in the Constitution, including equality. Um, you need to understand that, and then she, she went after that, and she at the time expected that the Equal Rights Amendment i.e. equality of rights uh -huh. by the United States or any other state shall not be denied or abridged by the, on account of sex. It's literally the same amendment with the switch out of the three words, equality of rights versus the right to vote. So what happened was the equal rights moment was supposed to be, the equal rights moment was supposed to be part B, but it never happened. A hundred years later, it never happened. Mm. And every generation has had its, its uh, you know, its dog fight about why it never happened. But we today still do not have it. And the interesting thing is every generation has looked back on the one before it for the reasons that they stated for not having and just said, well, gosh, that's stupid. I mean, in the 20s, it was fear of petticoat rule. You know, we had the man-man culture. We had the idea of women losing femininity. We had women in the military with, you know, a big, a big deal back in the 70s. We had, yeah, you know, unisex bathrooms, believe it or not, we're still talking about bathrooms. where people pee when they're not home. Oh, I mean, no. all these only now we switched from, you know, that gender equality, the idea of uh, denying equality to women because they were, were concerned where people were going to, you know, empty their bladder when they weren't home always seemed to me a, to be a staggering reason to not have a conversation about gender equality. But be that as it may, today we still don't have it. It went through 35 states. And the ratification process, um, anybody who's taken a, any kind of a constitutional law course, mm -hmm. when you go for a constitutional amendment, this Congress votes on it. Yes. The Congress votes voted on it in 1972, and it passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. And it's important to note at this moment that the Rights Amendment started out as a Republican bill. Yes. It was championed by Republicans for almost 70 years. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the rise of the Eagle Forum. Um, and the conservative uh, movement in this country that it was removed from the Republican platform in 1980. And it has languished ever since. And it's been part of the culture war of the idea that uh, women are second to men, so take the Bible, so they, we shouldn't give them equality. And that is the underlying social pushback that I, that I, have, I experience when I'm dealing with uh, fundamentalists. Yes. You know, people who are against it and don't know why. They're against it because they think... You know, God says it, so that's how they feel. So that's part of our, that's part of the problem. But anyway, what we have now is we have 35 states ratified the Equal Rights Amendment, and then it stalled in 1982 because it was hobbled with a ratification deadline. Yes. Now, the interesting thing about deadlines is that there are a lot of law journals and a lot of law studies that say the idea of ratification deadlines in and of themselves are unconstitutional because the Constitution does not call for deadlines, but it does call for parity in the process of seeking deadlines. Mm. And the interesting thing is that the Madison Amendment was, was passed after the ratification deadline on the Rights Amendment was imposed, and uh, that was a 200-plus year from start to finish. So yes. how you can have a 10-year deadline on one amendment and a 200-plus year inclusion of another one is, you know, speaks to the disparity of that process. Yes. The interesting thing is that Congress, conversely, is waiting for a freshly ratified state to press the reset button on the ratification process. They, they say they need an actionable reason. There is bills in Congress to remove the ratification deadline, but they need an actionable reason. Congress isn't going to vote on something that hasn't got a reason to be voted on. We bring in a freshly ratified state. They go, we have a freshly ratified state that will be added to the list. Let's remove the deadline and stick it in. That's what they want. On the on the state side, here in the Virginia General Assembly, they're going, oh, we can't do what the ratification deadline is imposed. Well, that is also a specious argument because mm -hmm. the poll tax in Virginia was voted on with you know, the 24th Amendment, which addressed the poll tax. And it's interesting, they only impose ratification deadlines on things they don't want. They try to hobble it. Mm. Poll tax, they tried to hobble. The Equal Rights Amendment, they tried to hobble. And But anyway, the state of Virginia voted on the 24th Amendment, the poll tax amendment, seven years after the ratification deadline was imposed. So we actually have precedent of the Virginia General Assembly voting on something that was hobbled with a ratification deadline. They can ignore it if they want to, but they're using that as an excuse to not do anything. So we have the state convention in Virginia coming up on the 18th of June, and the, and the, um, the state, uh, Virginia General Assembly has passed the 
it grates them. And in the Virginia Senate, five years in a row now, with bipartisan support, only to be stonewalled in the Virginia House of Delegates. They'll even get out of committee. They, they kill it in committee because they don't want to have a debate on the floor of the House of Delegates that they don't support equality for women. That's bad optic. That won't go well. They know it. So they kill it every year. So five, five years we passed it. And the question I ask is when does obstruction occur? Yeah. If your own Virginia Senate is passing something with bipartisan support, five years running, and your House of Delegates ceremoniously kills it, that same bill, five years in a row, doesn't even let it out of the committee, is that obstruction? I would say that it is, and that's what yes. we're dealing with. So what we're doing is we're going to the state convention with a resolution on in the Democratic platform, basically giving an impromptu and that's a legal word, which means, you know, like a solidarity inclusion, yes. an impromptu uh, seal of approval on the efforts to finish ratification in the state of Virginia. And Virginia remains one of the three states that are needed because 35 states ratified it after it passed Congress in 1972. I mean, think about it. Why he ratified the equal rights amendment 37 minutes after it passed in 1972? They're still waiting for Virginia to get off its behind and do something. Yeah. 35 states have ratified it. We need 38. And Virginia has a, a Senate that has passed it for five times. And the two men in the Privileges and Elections Committee uh, were the Speaker, um, Speaker Howell yes. and, uh, the, and the Privileges and Elections Chair, Mark Cole, who was himself about to speak in, and said to me he's concerned about women and clergy, which means he inherently doesn't understand separation of church and state. We'd make that a, a non-argument. That doesn't change anything. Yes. I mean, you know, again, separation of church and state. But he refuses to drop the bill, and William Howe refuses to, you know, tell him not to. So it's totally being stonewalled by two men who are, you know, over 60, you know, conservatives, don't want to talk about it, and they don't want to even have the discussion. So this is, so is, is, is this obstruction? I say that it is. So we're also, uh, Jackie Spear, who is the congresswoman who has the bill in Congress, and who has said on the floor of, of Congress, uh, we're waiting for Virginia to act. We mm. want to, you know, because she has a bill then to remove the ratification of the Boric Amendment as soon as there is a freshly ratified state to give causation to do so. And she, has, she said on March 6th of this year, on the floor of Congress, the Virginia Senate has voted to draft the Rights Amendment for the fifth year on the row. We are waiting for the House of Delegates to act. The House of Delegates' response was to refuse to even put it into committee for consideration. They just killed it in subcommittee. How, this is how, kind of stonewalling that we're dealing with. How can, so, how can Virginians attend the National Convention? I guess that would be a way. How can they put pressure on the House of Delegates in Richmond, Virginia? Oh, they have to call their, they have to call their, their state delegates. They okay. have to call their Virginia senator, especially if they're Republican. Yes. Especially if they're Republican. Um, you know, this is a bipartisan issue. Ninety-seven percent of Americans think we should have gender equality in our United States Constitution. And no, the 14th Amendment does not cover that. If you saw Lincoln, what's next? You know, rights yes. for women. This was the Civil War Amendment. It was never meant to include equality of gender. Indeed, Justice Scalia, may he rest in peace, gave us the best quote to prove that point when he was asked why he voted against Billy Ledbetter's petition to the Supreme Court. Um, it's important to remember that that started out as the Supreme Court. Uh, it was turned down, and that's when it became a congressional law, which is really an intermediate scrutiny law and not a constitutional principle, mm -hmm. and that was basically a consolation prize. So when he was asked by a very uh, cheeky law student why he voted against it, his quote was, the question is not whether or not the Constitution requires discrimination based on sex. The question is whether or not it prohibits it. It doesn't. Thank you, Justice Scalia. Yeah. Because he is, in fact, correct. It doesn't. And anything less than the Constitution is simply less. We've had the laws, we've had things like Diddy Dukes versus Walmart, which is the largest class action suit ever, ever to be brought up, and it was a gender discrimination case brought before the Supreme Court. They couldn't take it on the principle of gender discrimination because there is no gender discrimination principle in the United States Constitution. Mm. So they tied it to the Commerce Clause. It's failed in the Supreme Court, not because they didn't have a gender discrimination case, it failed because they couldn't make the case that it was a violation of the Commerce Clause, because it didn't belong there. It was yes. not a Commerce Clause, and it was a discrimination case. So, well, we need the Equal Rights Amendment 
now more than we ever did. Our military women need it. Our Title IX needs it. Our VAWA needs it. All of these incremental, we have an Equal Pay Act of 1963, which is useless and toothless because it doesn't have the constitutional principle of gender equality to sit on. And that's the point. All of these intermediate congressional level laws are not sitting on constitutional principle. And uh, people say to me, well, you don't really think that the constitutional amendment is going to cure sexism, do you? And I'm like, no, not any more than the 14th Amendment cured racism. Yes. But at least we have the basis. We know where the floor is. The yes. principle is in place. We have a stated constitutional principle. With gender equality, we do not. So Jackie Spears is also putting in a national level amendments to the national constitution. And I have a woman who's a member of my group who's a very, very strong Republican who happens to be a Trump supporter, I might add. So we're a very bipartisan, big tent organization. Mm -hmm. If you believe in gender equality, um, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's what brings us together. Yes. She's trying to get the Republican Party to bring the same resolution. Um, mm. And, you know, I welcome it. If she's able sure. to do that, that's, sure. that's wonderful. All right. Uh, because it's time. All right, we're, we're going to have to go, but before we go, tell us again the National Convention for the Ratification of Equal Rights Amendment, when and where, and also uh, well, give us your website. The National Convention is the National Democratic Convention. Okay. We are putting this as a resolution in the National Democratic platform. We have, we have, we have events for the ratification uh, every year on Women's Equality Day. We have, you know, all we have the rally in, at, the, at the Capitol back in February on crossover day. Yes. We have ongoing things going all day. What we're doing now is we're, we're pushing for and finishing the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment to be a front burner economic issue for families because this is an economic issue for families yes. and, it's, and it's an equality issue for women. And we feel it won't cost anything to do it. If yes. anything, it'll save money because when women have a, a significant wage gap, um, they, they have to fill that gap somewhere, right? It's often through government programs. Yes. So, you know, this is something when you learn about it, it's hard to not agree with it. You know, it really isn't, and, it's, and it, it doesn't cost any. Equal means equal, and it's like, you know, equality is like love. There's yes. plenty to go around. Yes. If you give equality to 51% of the population, it doesn't, it doesn't take anything away from men. Mm-hmm. It actually adds to it. I had one college um, gentleman uh, testify before the Senate that, you know, he's expecting this to pass because he hopes to be married someday and have a family and he wants to know that the combined income of him and his wife are going to be, you know, they're going to be on parity with one yeah. another because what ends up on the kitchen, this kitchen table issue. Exactly. The combined income of a husband and spouse is, an, is a kitchen table issue. And, and men who ignore this issue, I get a lot of men contact me once they have a female child. You want to you want to you want to you raise a man's awareness. Give him a female child, yes. and then tell him this isn't in place. And suddenly they're like, "Oh no, it's not okay." Yeah. Well, no, it's not. Do something about it. Excellent. So it's a knowledge issue. So what your people can do is learn the issue by going to women-matter.org. They can call their senator and their delegates and like say, "Look, if it's coming up in next general assembly, it yes. will come up again." Yes. Up every year, they need to call their House of Delegates Republican or their House of Delegates Democrat and say, "Tell Speaker Hell and tell Villages and Elections Mark Hole that you want this brought to the floor for the dignity of the debate. Women in Virginia deserve, my God, at least the dignity of the debate on this issue. Stonewall it is so inherently disrespectful, and that's part of it. We want the dignity of the debate. We want a we want a a, a vote that is." That is counted. We want uh, we want these people to vote on this and to stand behind their vote. Yes. You know we, we want them to defend if they vote against it. Why they would vote against equality for all Americans. And this is what we want. And this is what we need them to do. And if they have a Republican senator, they need they need to call them as well. Now all of the Democratic senators vote for it, and a handful of Republican senators vote for it. Yes. So we need them to call them as well and say you need to vote for this. We need an overwhelming majority. You know, it's time for Virginia to uncork this stalemate. We've yes. been sitting on ice for too long. But that's what, we, that's what you can do. Learn the issue, become an advocate for the issue, and call your elected officials. Tweet them, email them, and tell them. Then you can also text ERA to 52886. All right, that's then. An easy one. Okay, uh, we've been talking to Eileen Davis, <laughs> co-founder of women-matter.org. 
a lot of important information and we have to do our own homework and learn what's going on and what isn't going on and be in touch with our government. Otherwise, it's not our government. Thank you so very much, Eileen, for being on the show today. As always, it's incredibly informative and educational, okay? We wish you all the very best in everything, especially at the Democratic National Convention and as an advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment ratification. Thank you, Eileen Davis. Thank you, Marcella. My pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye now. Bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Andy Phil Minute. Getting old. There comes a time when you start to realize it's too late to regain what's lost. You feel you've become too old to be relevant. The sometimes only slightly younger, the workplace and the world in general all seem to shy away. Yet even when we acknowledge that life may never again be as it once was or as we wanted it to be, choice remains. And there resides the potential for poignant, relevant, and deeply moving stories. I'll See You in My Dreams, starring Blythe Danner. Must we remember this wonderfully talented star of stage and screen merely as the mother of Gwyneth Paltrow? Here, Danner plays a widow and former singer facing just such a turning point. With a little help from her friends, she makes choices again. She falls in love again with Sam Elliott, no less. She begins to end her isolation and reconnect to the life around her. This is a funny and compassionate story. A story for all of us. I'll See You in My Dreams falls within the so-called silver dollar genre. Sensitive films that touch the heart of a certain generation. A generation that is still ever-growing. I'll see you in my dreams, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us in becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Real grown-ups listen to children. Hillary is right. It's not just about Wall Street. It's about wealthy people taking homes from needy families in public housing. It's about pharmaceuticals risking the public health and welfare with diminished production of medications. It's about finally putting women and children first, if only because of Alzheimer's. It's about draining American know-how by stunting educated expertise with bank loans reminiscent of recession-causing mortgages. It's about people like Scarelli being America's economic Ebola and corporatism's hedge funds shrinking our brain size like a Zika virus. It's about being bitten by the ideology of the streets, K, Wall, and Main, and internationally leaving our children behind. It's about failing humanity's bookends, elderly experience and youthful curiosity while ignoring Syrian children starving to death before being bombed. It's about the silence that eats our young, not just BP, Exxon, and Cheney's Halliburton, but Southern California's methane, not just ISIS, but FSIS. It's simply reading, writing, and arithmetic, too many congressional-funded foggy-bottom wars leaving too few tax dollars for EPA, FDA, and ATF. It's about 30-somethings diet transforming them into our crumbling infrastructure, expecting millennials to be equipped for to infinity and beyond. It's about the inevitable awakening of more mayors to contaminated cold water in their face. It's about our bequeathing our inheritance from LBJ, Nixon, Reagan, and GW's Mushroom Cloud Gang to our children. It's about needing more than one person to reform a politicized Supreme Court and obstructionist Congress. It's about saving ourselves. 
with either one who's played chicken with international bullies, bears, foxtails, and wolf packs, or millions whose New Year's resolutions are to appear on the Washington Mall to fill in foreign policy gaps. It's about Jeb Bush backers needing state governments, not D.C., running things, because conservative money is buying up Abbott and all the Red Costello governors, Brownback, Snyder, and the Scots of Florida and Wisconsin, Rick and Walker. It's about only disciples of Cruz Slees and Trump con job marks as the new Great White Hope. It's about We Built That. Historically, girls, women, and their history of college, military, and LGBT rape, spousal abuse, hungry children, minimum wage earners, American human trafficking, drugs, and prison was largely untold. It's about that and about this. The Catholic University of America's Father Harkey once asked me to help a high school Sound of Music production. The director nun asked if, as a white von Trapp, I mind kissing a black Maria, for none of the potential leading boys her age would. I gave Harolyn Blackwell her first stage kiss. When actress-producer Lili Sobieski was around eight years old, she was the dear friend of the beautiful little daughter of a soap opera writer with whom I was sharing New York City. Neither young lady wanted Lili's younger brother involved in their play date, so I was cast as the grown-up. Preoccupied with showing me all his toys, from which I suppose I was expected to choose, the two camps remained separate but equal, until he showed me his bow, arrows, and sword. Then the entire Upper West Side condominium, filled with her mother's paintings, became Indians versus Zorro. Nonetheless, upon the mother's return, Lily happily announced it was the only time her little brother had not intruded on girl time. Then, with a kiss upon my cheek, she asked me to come over for all their playdates. No, it's not just about Wall Street, but about all those children voting for the first time. Because if we the people say, voting is not my job, we can expect followers to lead us into food and water wars. It's about young students learning from the Iowa caucus, saving the life of their teacher, Melissa Harris-Perry and about a young mother feeling the heartbeat of her dead son in the body of a little girl whose life was saved by a mother's greatest sacrifice. Some of us have to be the grown-ups. It's about that. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.